if you would turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the end of Jonah chapter 3 briefly tonight. We've seen a lot of things happening here with Jonah being called to preach to Nineveh, his refusal to take that call and fleeing and and the great storm at sea and the great fish and Jonah getting, we saw last time, a second chance to go to Nineveh. And so now we're going to look at what the result of that second chance is that the Lord gives to him. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 10 this evening. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us through Jonah and his mission. That you would teach us what true revival brings. And what revival would look like, not just in our nation or our city, but in our own hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Can you imagine what it must have been like in that day? In your mind's eye, perhaps you can picture a businessman of the time laying out his wares, perhaps rich clothing or food of every sort. Women working outside their homes in the hustle and bustle of the streets of Nineveh. Children running to and fro, playing. That all of these things happening, not just in light, good-hearted sport, but because this is Nineveh, there would be an edge about all of them. There would be children that would beat other children, following their parents in a history of violence. There would be women who would mistreat each other. There would be people who would try to cheat that businessman knowing that he was trying to cheat them as well. All of this ordinary hustle and bustle of life and grief and sin, into it comes Jonah. A man who's not like them. A man who not only is not like them because he's of Israel, 
but because this is a man that has just literally been vomited up onto the shore by a great fish. He's been through about everything you could imagine going through. Being on a a ship tossed at sea and then being almost drowned and then being rescued by a great fish. And in that fish, coming to see the Lord. Can you imagine what they would be thinking as he walked up to them? They might be looking and say, who is this? The kids might laugh and poke each other and say, you know, he smells bad. He'd be odd. And then he begins to speak. To speak words that they'd never heard before. To speak words that had never taken root like this before. He began to tell them, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What would they have done with that? They certainly wouldn't have expected this when their day began. But at the end of this day, at the end of this time that Jonah is there, they will be changed forever. They will experience the greatest revival in the history of the world. There is no account like this. No account of so great a city, of so wicked a city, so wholly repenting. Why study it? It's a historical curiosity, but at the same time, we know that the effects were not very lasting. It was perhaps one generation and the Ninevites were back to their wicked, violent ways. I think one of the reasons that this is in here for us is to understand what revival brings, not just to wicked cities out there somewhere, but what revival means to you, to me. And this evening, briefly, I'd like to look at three things. This passage helps us in our understanding. In first, our understanding of our own sin, our understanding of sin. Second, in our understanding of God's grace. And third, in our understanding of God's, and I'll use the quote marks here, repentance. What does it mean when we see here that God relents or repents? An understanding of our sin, an understanding of God's grace, and an understanding of repentance. So what do we see here from the Ninevites? We see that Jonah begins to preach and the people of Nineveh believe God and they then take action. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth and they and the king goes and sits in the ashes. And the first thing we see in an understanding of our sin is they have a real sorrow for sin. We can see it, right? They put on different clothing. The king goes and sits In ashes, this is a public display. The call for a fast shows that they are serious about sin. The putting on of sackcloth shows that they have grief and they're humbled by sin. Sitting in the ashes shows that they're not afraid to be public in acknowledging their sin. But remember, public display is one thing. The heart is another. 
And so the first thing that we need to understand is that these displays in in themselves are not bad, but we cannot stop there. That is not the sum of their acknowledgement of sin. It is merely an outward expression of their repentance. And we're warned throughout the Bible not to rely merely on the outward expression. Because grief produces action, doesn't it? Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. You see, false repentance causes us to grieve over sin, to focus on the consequences of sin. We don't want to be caught. But true repentance causes us to grieve over sin. And it leads to not just a sorrow for sin, but a turning from sin. You see, when Paul talks about this this energy, this zeal that comes about, we need to understand that as we think about our sin, God does not want us to sit and simply cry or weep and be focused on ourselves. He wants us to understand the depth of our sin that we might look to a great Savior and that we might be prompted to action and be freed by knowing that we have forgiveness. True repentance produces not only sorrow, but a turning from sin. It issues in a change of life. And we see this here in Jonah. In verse 8, we see that there is an action that comes from this. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They've turned from what has marked their life. Violence. And they turn from sin to God. Because you see, the other thing is it's not important, it's not sufficient to just be reformed. To reform our life. To clean up our act. It's not enough for the Ninevites merely to simply say, we're not going to be violent anymore. We're going to go to the equivalent of anger management counseling. We'll go to AA meetings and we'll, we'll keep off from that horrible sin. No. There's also a turning to God. Look again at verse 8. The king calls out to them that they are to call out and to call out mightily to God. They are to look to the Lord in their understanding of sin. So what this should encourage us with is that As we think about our own sin, we are encouraged to use that occasion to seek the Lord. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That if we think about our sin, we should be depressed and we should should be downtrodden and we should think there's no hope. But God wants us to think of our sin so that we move to Him. We don't remain in that state of focus upon sin. We call out to Him. Because you see, we see that in the second thing that we will look at this evening. We have not only an understanding of our own sin, but we have an understanding of God's grace. 
The Ninevites get this understanding. They understand, first and foremost, the grace of God's word. Because what they get is a wake-up to reality. They had been blind. They had been blinded by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. It's as Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, Because we have a ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. Because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that describes the Ninevites. They were blind to the Lord, blind to Jesus, blind to the gospel. But the same God that said, let there be light, brought the light of Jesus Christ into their life. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So where they had been blind, where they had been completely unconcerned about what they had done, when they had had a false view of the world, a false view of justice, a false view of God, now they saw. Their indifference was replaced by hearts that were pricked, consciences that were awakened. This is a frightening experience to them. And if we're honest to us as well, because God comes down and reaches our innermost being and unsettles us. He's not willing to be satisfied with where we are. He pushes us on into the image of Jesus Christ. And this should also give us confidence as we speak to others. If the blind Ninevites, whose national pastime was building pyramids out of the skulls of their enemies, could be touched by the grace of God, why can't your neighbors? Why can't your coworkers? Why can't your family? You see, this is what revival brings. It changes people because it is the God of grace who performs this change. Now, this is not an ordinary occurrence. You know this, but the Bible tells us. It is not that whoever you come up to and tell the gospel says, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Sure, I'll follow Jesus. There's not a one-to-one ratio with sharing the gospel And someone trusting Christ, is there? The typical response is actually found in Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 36. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or follow along. This is as Jeremiah prepares a scroll that God has given to him to take to the king, to King Jehoiakim. It says in chapter 36, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and the nations. It may be, in verse 3, that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. This is remarkably similar to what is happening in Nineveh, right? 
And so Jeremiah writes on the scroll and he gives it to his servant and we would expect this is part of the people of God. They will hear this. They will understand that God is wrathful and they will turn from their wicked ways and they will seek the Lord. Except we're disappointed. Because we see here in verse 15 that the officials who are sent to meet with Baruch, the servant of Jeremiah, they say to him, sit down and read the scroll. And he reads it to them. And then when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. Not of God, but of man. They sit and they say to themselves, how in the world can we bring this to the king? He's going to be angry. Heads will roll. And they're right. Because in verse 23, as three or four columns of this scroll are read, the king takes out a knife and he casually cuts it and he throws this part of the scroll into the fire. He could care less. And he does this until the entire scroll is destroyed. That is natural man's reaction. The reaction in Nineveh is supernatural. It is the God of grace showering down His grace upon a people completely undeserving. And they are convicted. They're convicted of their spiritual danger. They are convicted of their present danger of destruction. And they turn and repent. This is the act of a loving God, isn't it? Do we think it is cruel at a park where there are warnings on a fence, do not climb the fence, cliff on the other side? Do we say how mean and nasty of them, how limiting of them? No. We say how good of them to put out that warning that we might not be destroyed. You see, the Ninevites hear this word of God, but they also are affected by a hope that comes to them from God's grace because there is a hope of mercy. Fear is not enough. We cannot simply come to others with the law. Now, we must. We cannot stop there because fear does not draw one to God. There must be hope. There must be mercy put forward. There must be gospel. There must be good news that draws one to the Lord. And, and this is implied in the warning, isn't it? Forty days and you'll be destroyed. Why even give the warning except for if you change, then I won't destroy you? Would you rather have lived in Nineveh or Sodom? Think about it. There was no warning for Sodom. Nineveh is given a gracious warning, a sign that God is merciful. And this is how we should view the Bible's warnings, isn't it? As God's warning to us that it is only by grace that we can repent. That's the only way they can change. That's the only way you and I can change. It's by the grace of God. By the work of the Spirit of God. Well, we understand something of our own sin. We understand something of God's grace. But finally, we also see here at the end, we get an understanding of God's repentance. You see, the king of Nineveh says, Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and turn from his fierce anger. And then verse 10 is a very curious verse. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, how they repented from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now, this is confusing to us because the word repent is is invested with so much meaning to us. We see it as turning from a mistake, turning from sin, right? And when we hear of God, especially older translations will actually say God repented. Or even God relented. We wonder, what was the mistake that God made? Why did God have to change? And you see, the problem there is our focus is wrong. Because here God is speaking to us using human language. And we need to understand that it is we who change, not God. There is a wholehearted trust in the Lord by the Ninevites as evidenced by verse 9. There is no guarantee that God will relent. The king says, who knows? (laughs) We have to take this opportunity before us. There is no bargaining With the Lord here. They don't say, well, God, we'll do better if you save us. And we need to be reminded that we are not to bargain with God. But there is a real repentance and faith that happens together. We do not repent first and then believe. This happens together. Repentance accompanies our faith and is a sign of true faith. And what happens in the final analysis is that Nineveh is changed. And bear with me here. God said he would destroy Nineveh in 40 days. The Nineveh that God said he would destroy ceased to exist. It was no longer that Nineveh anymore. Nineveh was more different than if someone had picked up that city and moved it a thousand miles and planted it somewhere else. It was a completely different city with a completely different focus and completely different leaders and a completely different hope. And so it is natural for God not to destroy Nineveh. Because now Nineveh is what it should be. Nineveh is different. And isn't that true with you and me as well? That God does not destroy us in His wrath for our sin because we are recreated in Jesus Christ. And that He looks on us and does not see our old sinful self, but He sees the new creation that He has created by His grace. You see... It's a little bit starker when we see a whole city let off the hook. But the same principle applies to us. There is a satisfaction of God's justice because of His mercy in the work of Christ. And we see it finally in a little bit of a word play. These two words, repent and relent, Turn and repent. The the first applying to the Ninevites, the second applying to God, seem to be identical, but they're actually two different words in the original. When it applies to the Ninevites, it is a word that means to turn from, to take some action up. 
to admit you were wrong and to move on. But the word that applies to God is different. It has as its its meaning comfort, sorrow, to be sorry for something and to feel compassion. It's the same sort of word that we get Noah from, comfort, rest. And we see here that there is a comfort that comes, and this comfort comes through suffering, through compassion, through pain. That's the meaning of the word. And so God relents. God's change comes through suffering, doesn't it? Not the Ninevites. Because you see, only relent because of the suffering of God. Because of the work of God in Jesus Christ. That is how he can relent. That is how he can show mercy and grace because he's already suffered. This is the same God in your life that is the God in the Ninevites' life. He is the God who suffered for you. He is the God who has relented on punishment because he looks upon you and does not see that old self. He is the God who brings revival. And revival is just what? New life. He is the God of new beginnings. If he can do it in as wicked and great a place as Nineveh, he is certain to do it in the life of his child. Trust him this evening to make you more into the image of Christ, to point you to the cross, and to grant you true repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this evening that you have encouraged us from your word and that you have given us opportunity to pray with and for one another. We ask that you would take us from this place, that we might be your ambassadors, that we might serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in his precious name. Amen.